Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So thank you again for that, Brian. And uh, Zach, if you want to just uh, maybe briefly introduce yourself. Great. So I'm, I'm going to try to make this talk um, not, not rely solely on my visuals, but every time I've been invited to talk, this has sort of been the, the theme of my presentations as of late. It's a title is just called No Blood Our Own. And it's the subtitle is Moving Toward a Sacrificial Approach to Two Kingdoms Peacemaking. And I'll uh, just thank you again for the invitation. I, I welcome all feedback because I've been just kind of been my, uh, my passion project over the last two years is just doing a lot of thinking and researching into what uh, Christian peacemaking is. So just as a short introduction, my name is Zach Johnson. I'm the Dean of Students at Sattler College. Um, and our tagline there is equipping Jesus, peaceful revolution, light the world through relational discipleship and academic excellence. And over the past, I think I was over the past three years, I've been working at Sattler closely with um, a man in this picture named Finney Caravilla. He's the founder of Sattler and also a dear friend and mentor. And I, I would just say a spiritual, uh, spiritual mentor in my life. In this picture, this was... Um, spring of 2017 at my trial to leave the U.S. Air Force, where uh, Finney was a witness in the case where I, I kind of stood up before the uh, a military lawyer and had to go through the whole, the whole process of leaving the military. So I, I sort of framed my talk with this because, in, you know, three years ago, I was about to go into a very different, different life. I was living a very different life, but I'm very passionate about about peacemaking and especially after encountering sort of a different perspective of, of Christ and how we should think about peacemaking here. So that's just a quick background into my last few years. I'm also married now and live in Boston and I'm expecting my first child in February. So a lot, a lot is changing for me. <laughs> so a couple, a couple years ago, I, uh, a group of students and I, I think three, three students, we just tried to, to answer this basic question of what are the guiding principles, models, and metrics of biblical peacemaking grounded in two kingdoms perspective, striving for a holistic peace in individual communities. And as you can imagine, if you go and do a Google search for peacemaking or peacekeeping, you... <laughs> You'll, you'll get about, you know, a couple hundred thousand hits and you have no, no real idea on, on where to start and how to tackle this, this question. So we, we worked pretty hard to just do as much reading as we can, doing a lot of interviews. So um, what I'm going to try to show you today is just a quick summary of the last two years of what I've been doing, been um, these I also spent the last two summers down at a college called Eastern Mennonite University doing um, their grad work and what they call conflict transformation. Uh, this is just a plug. A lot of people, when they hear that work at Sattler, they're like, hey, you guys are going to turn into somewhere like Eastern Mennonite. So I decided to go find out for myself what we're, <laughs> what we're headed towards and just doing a lot of 
research and thinking into what they're teaching down there. And I feel like I've wrapped my head pretty, pretty well around their framework for, for their worldview and things like that. So I've done, we've done a lot of reading from books. Um, Lisa Shirk is sort of the main book that EMU Center for Peace Building and, and Justice, they, they prescribe that to all their students. I've done, a, I've tried to map some research out into a book called When Helping Hurts. That's by a man named Steve Corberry, Corbett and Bryant Fickert. There's sort of two Christians who have studied the poverty alleviation world and tried to distill the Christian principles of why the general world is getting poverty alleviation wrong. And then there's a man named John Paul Lederick. He wrote a book called The Moral Imagination. He's really well known. If you Google like peacemaking, you'll probably fall on his research. He's within the, the MCC or MCUSA world. And then there's a, just a bunch of different things I've done here. And then Obviously, there's a biblical basis for peacemaking in starting in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Ephesians 2, James 3 through 4, 1 Peter, Romans. And I am more convinced than ever that Jesus in his Beatitudes, when he was describing those Beatitudes, that it wasn't simply a description of blessings, but it was a prescription that Jesus is calling us to be peacemakers and calling us into areas of the world where there there is conflict and not necessarily just saying oh it's it thumbs up to you who choose to be peacemakers I, I think it's a very prescriptive model in the beatitudes there and then I've just we've been able to do a lot of interviews with some of these author authors and I'll just go over some of this so I think my in general what I think the the world of peacemaking really needs is something similar to what this man is named Mr. Steve Colbert, something similar to what they did to the world of poverty alleviation. So um, these two men, um, Steve Corbett and Bryant Fickert, a while ago, they wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. And there's, there's a lot of research out there just going into how people and when they're giving things away have just really hurt the, the developing world um, with unintentionally without really thinking about the things that they're doing. And after talking with uh, Mr. Corbett, I, uh, I'm, I feel really, really passionately that the world of peacemaking kind of needs a reawakening um, in general. And I know that many of you already have a two kingdoms frame, but I think that we have a lot of, of work to be doing to do the same thing they did where they sort of went out and they said, hey, just giving people money isn't going to solve all their problems. It's actually going to hurt them in the long run. I've done a lot of um, talking with a man named Pablo Yoder. He might, hopefully he's not a, a stranger to some of you. I was able to go down and visit his church in Nicaragua, where I would say if I could point to one church who knows about peacemaking right now, it would be his church down in Nicaragua. It's in West Lala. It's called Hermandad Cristiana. And the stories that are coming out of there are truly amazing to me about how they have been able to take previous men of violence and to turn them into disciples of Christ on either sides of a conflict. If you're familiar with the situation in Nicaragua, I, you, you go to their church and you will find two men that used to be fighting against each other now in the same church. And I just, I feel like we should be paying close attention to what they're doing down there. 
And then this is just an example of a, a book. If you, if you Google like peacemaking or reconciliation, this, this man, um, Dr. Edgardo Emmerich at an institution called Duke, his book is what I would call sort of a very vanilla um, response to what the world is telling us to be reconciliation. And I just pulled a quote out of his book. So he says, the mission of the church is not just to save souls. The most robust understanding of reconciliation is one in which we need to be reconciled to God, but not God alone. Being reconciled with God empowers us to give us a task, being reconciled to each other and to all of creation. And I feel like that quote kind of embodies a lot of a lot of the general world of peacemaking where the salvation of souls is almost a secondary, um, a secondary endeavor in peacemaking. So when you, when you go out this and, and study, Hey, what, what are the sources of the conflict that we're seeing around us here, whether it be violence, whether it be political um, polarization, a lot of people will now point to, these, these uh, sort of high level problems like social and economic inequality, political exclusion, corrupt governments. There's a book called Why Nations Fail. And it's basically saying all the problems of the world can be, can be pointed to the corrupt institutions around us, um, environmental degradation from resource extraction. And so people are pointing at these things and then they're saying, that's why we have high crime rates. That's why we have gangs, ethnic clashes, poverty, refugees, that the, the underlying root causes of some of the world's problems are not spiritual. So the world, I would say in general, has misdiagnosed the problem. And that's why it's so relevant for us with a two kingdoms perspective to be reclaiming the problem statement, because if you misdiagnose the problem, then often you're, you're going to be hacking at the, you're trying to come up with solutions that just don't get to the root problem. And so what, what I wanted to do, just do, say is that when I, when we've been reading a lot about peacemaking, peace building, the peace world, many, much of our research what I would say on the x-axis, if you could put ourselves on two poles, a lot of our research has a low view of God or a low view of the importance of God and their model of how to prescribe um, solutions to the world. And so I, I put myself on this researcher's side where many of the people that I've been talking to, I'm trying to say, hey, I'm starting from a place where I think the relationship with God is the most essential relationship of humanity. And I think that many of you brothers on this call could agree to that, that our relationship with God should be elevated. And this is just an example of, I mentioned that when helping Hertz book, where you, you look at um, some of the different poverty alleviations models, and many of those models are just trying to empower somebody to have a good relationship with himself and then, but the, the authors come and say, hey, hey, if you have a solution that doesn't reestablish someone's relationship with God, you've missed the point. And at the end, all your efforts will have been in vain because if you, if you sort of set someone who is poor on the right path um, out of poverty, but miss his relationship with God in the very end, um, it's, it's not going to go well. And then on the other on the other side of things, so the first axis I defined was 
the view of God. So a lot of our research, um, when you, you go out there, has a low view of God. I would say that God is maybe just a, an okay thing to, to believe in. On the other spectrum, or the vertical spectrum in this case, you, you see a lot of diversity about pe how people view their enemies. And what, what has been really interesting is what I think when you put those two questions together, um, how do you view God in, in your relationships and how do you view enemies that you can kind of um, get four broad categories of, of peacemaking and what I'm trying to argue um, in all of my in all of my presentations is that true peacemaking has a high view of God important to relationships and also a high view of enemies that it, your enemies are actually very important to include in your worldview of how you're trying to reconcile people and your models. So when you map those, those two questions out, you, I can, you can imagine getting a, so is God central in your core relationships and are enemies central in the core relationships, sort of your model of peacemaking? If the answer to both those questions is yes, that you get this sacrificial view of peacemaking, um, which I think is lacking in the world. I don't think there are many people doing it. And then you kind of get these three other models where maybe enemies are very important in the core set of relationships, but God isn't. So in, in the top left, I would, I would call that something called globalism or liberalism. So right now, many of you might be paying attention to the electoral politics in the United States. There's actually a quite a significant portion of people in the liberal camp who kind of fall into this where they, they kind of like the idea of peacemaking. And if, if, if I were to tell them that I left the military for reasons of conscience, they'd be like, oh man, that's, that's really cool. I, good for you. But when I tell them God is the most important relationship, that's where they sort of balk and they say, ah, the, I'm going to stay away from your religion. And then the, these other two models, if God is not included and enemies are not included, that's classically called something called realism. And then where, where people just kind of don't believe in God and they believe that basically security is the, the main part of life, that is realism. And then what I think the Christian world, many of you know, has experienced is that um, the, the teaching of love of enemies has sort of disappeared over the course of time as the church has married the state, which what I call is Christian realism, where the, the answer is God is important, but enemies no longer get, get mapped in here. So I just wanted to take a little bit of time to, to map out um, those, those four, these four quadrants. I'll say them again. So sacrificialism is the view that I think is, is mo is, the, the view we should be moving towards. Globalism is a view where, where enemies are important, but Godism isn't. Realism is this view where neither God nor your enemies are important. And then Christian realism is what I would say would be characterized by the Christian right right now a lot of the times where God is very important, but your enemies sort of get left behind and they're sort of the, the target of a lot of... Um, just violence or generally saying, I'm not going to respect you if you're my enemy. So in realism here, 
we have the most important being is your is is yourself um and then as you move out from the, the those relationships you can see that you know your your neighbor's kind of important the state around you is important others might be important other people but um and if if you could see this diagram right here so dotted lines represent relationships that can re be reconciled and solid lines represent relationships that can't be reconciled so in realism you sort of get the self-contained group where people are most concerned about their own security but their enemies those are the people that are most threaten them so they're they're never going to be reconciled um, a great example of a a realist is a man named or a martyr in the realist camp is a mat named a man named pat tillman so pat tillman it was a an NFL player who after 9-11, you know, left his career of stardom, joined the joined the Marines and then went and served and was killed as a martyr for the things he believed in and in his view of how to make peace. It's very interesting how many of these views of peacemaking also have martyrs associated with them. Um, next up, we just have this this Christian realism. So Christian realism is what I would say the predominant view right now among Christians in America, where if you ask someone what is most important to you, one might say you might hear words like freedom or liberty, like I don't tell, just let me live my life and let me be. And here, people will usually say that God is the most important um, person in the, these relationships, but out out from God, you can see that the self, the, the next relationship that is most important, self, maybe the neighbors, the state, um, others, people within that. And Christian realists, they, they sort of, um, they put themselves in a hard camp because they, they will kill their enemies and they'll say that we can, we can promote violence against our enemies, but we could, we could also convert them in another world. So I feel like there's a really hard view in this Christian realist camp to try to move where people will say, no, I think, um, I think my enemies, I could convert them to God, but if they're against me, I have no problem with, with eliminating them. But there is, so they, they kind of exist in a hard world from, from my perspective. Um, some of you might be familiar, just as an example, as a Christian realist, this man, his name is David Eubank. He started an organization called Three Burma Rangers, and he's actually a previous man in, in the U.S. Army. And I had a, a chance just to talk with him briefly for about an hour about his his mission. And so now you, you get examples of, I would say, really well-meaning people who are risking their lives for the security. In this picture, you can see him holding a little a little girl, rescuing her from wartime rubble. But if you zoom out, there will be um, the free Burma Rangers will carry weapons. And so they're sort of trying to secure souls and eliminate enemies at the same time. So you get sort of a, a more, a really interesting view of peacemaking from an example like Dave Eubank with the, the free Burma Rangers. And then this, this view right here, the next one is called globalism. And globalism is a really interesting um, mentality right now because what I've found is once you talk about Jesus's teachings on loving your enemies 
and turning the other cheek, they will very rapidly applaud you. And they'll be like, that is an amazing teaching. I hope you, I hope you promote that. But really in the, in the center, one of the most important things to a globalist or a liberalist is just humanity in general. So I, when I was down at EMU, I was, I paid really close attention to sort of the, the language that teachers were using that EMU is Eastern Mennonite University teachers were using the heads of the school were using. And it was very interesting. I even was able to give a presentation on Sattler College and their main critique of Sattler's model. They said, hey, where, how are you going to recruit uh, a Muslim to your school? And where, where is there room for all these other religions? And it seems like you've missed out on humanity. And I, I, di I didn't hear Christ one time in like my entire my entire time there and I, I spent a good I've taken around uh, nine classes from there and so what you end up happening with globalism is humanity is important self and others is important enemies are sort of in it and the state is but on the outside you sort of have a I, there's a question mark here about hey what what is it what is our mission here and I would say a globalist is just trying to promote equality among humanity and, and sort of establish a, a model where everybody's working hand in hand with each other. And so this is an example of a, a really well-meaning uh, globalist. So this, this man's name is Michael Sharp. He comes from a liberal Mennonite background and he actually became a UN peacekeeper. Um, and then he was actually shot and killed in in the Congo or the DRC as a mission to promote Christian, Christian peacemaking in a civil war in the Congo. So we see another example of, a, of a, a person willing to become a martyr for their model of peacekeeping. And I think it's, if you read about his story, it's, it's pretty inspirational. I would, I would say, you know, he, he gave up everything and he actually was with another person who was decapitated and they were just there trying to stop a civil war in the Congo. But this was born out of this belief of, of humanity being reconciled and that being very important, but God is sort of absent from the picture. And then this, is, this last one is what I have called sacrificialism. And this is what I think in general, the peacemaking world has to, um, has to go towards in order to have any success. So in this model, you'll begin to see sort of a little bit of a semblance of two kingdoms here where God, the relationship with God is the most important relationship in the center. But when you look at it, um, God, if you look at this, this from your own lens, you're, you're, ac you're actually on the outside of this relationship where a sacrificialist says, Hey, my neighbors and others, and even my own enemies, their relationship with God is more important than my own. I, I think that biblically, you end up being very inspired by men like Paul and Moses are the two examples. You, you hear them crying to God and you hear them saying, God, if, if only um, the people would be reconciled to you, I'll give up my own salvation. You, see, you hear Moses say this, you hear Paul say this, where ourself, we're actually less important than the people around us, even our own enemies. And in this model, I'm, I'm, I'll, uh, try, I'll try to put it all together here shortly. 
the state or the governments cannot be reconciled to God, which is a, a very, very, very important um, frame of mind to switch. You see this, I, I mentioned these dotted lines. I'm trying to put in these two kingdom notions here that in this model, we can take out individuals from the state and bring them to God and have them reconciled to God, but we can't reconcile the state itself. And that's a very uh, two kingdoms as principle. But I believe that peacemaking should, should be born from this very notion that um, others, people are more important than ourselves and that God is at the very center and that redemption is the most important thing that we're after. And unfortunately, you know, I, I'm very new to the world of peacemaking, about three years old, but I don't know of very many martyrs in this worldview that I can point to or that I've heard of. You know, I've heard a lot of stories about, I, I put a picture up of Dirk Willems here, of the story of him running away and saving saving sort of his captor. And you do hear really inspirational stories like Pablo Yoder and Ken Miller down and being thrown, thrown in prison. But I, I've yet to come across a story of one martyr um, in, in our lifetime who has sacrificially given their life for their view of peacemaking. And this is something that has, has started to, to bother me a little where I feel like if we truly believe in the message to be peacemakers in the world that we're surrounded with, that in our circles, we should have a high number of, of people we know who are sacrificially going and elevating the security, um, the security of others above themselves. And so when you, when you put it all together here, I, I tried to come up with a motto that, that best captures each of these views here. So the, the realist will say, you know, as much blood as necessary, you know, I will, I will spill as much blood as I can to promote my own security. The, uh, the just war theorist who is born out of the Christian realist camp will say, do you know what? As much blood as is just, I will, you know, I'll shed as much blood blood and it'll be a just cause and and you you see a lot of people making these these sort of arguments about how much blood is being is they're willing to shed for the sake of freedom and liberty and god's justice and the globalist they'll actually say even though i said they have a high view of their enemies many times you will find them saying as little blood as possible you know we're we're about um peace and enemies but when it comes to self-defense or something like that, if you press a globalist or somebody there on their view of others and their enemies, they'll say, you know what, as little as possible, but I'd still, I'd still probably promote self-defense. And in each of these worlds, you see that I've, um, I've labeled their primary mechanism of pr the pursuit of human security. So in the, in the realist camp, people just wage war. That has been the classic the classic way to wage war from a realist perspective and to promote security, that's no surprise. In the Christian realist camp, people wage just war because now they've included God in their model and they say, hey, God is on our side, therefore we can promote justice. 
in the globalist camp, I would say what the, the word that they you will hear is peace building. And they've actually, I've actually tried to really hard to understand the difference between peace building and peacemaking. And they'll say as little blood as possible, but you still, you will still f find them saying that, that the, the, the bloodshed of some humans is okay, which is, I was very surprised to, to find people in that camp. And then the, the mantra that I think we should just be, I'm beginning to try to become obsessed with is the sacrificialism mantra, which is just no blood, but our own, where we will love our enemies. And, but we will also not make decisions where we, we won't be able to shed our own blood, you know, where you see the, these stories of these other martyrs, like Pat Tillman, like Michael Sharp, and the countless people who are, who are going and, and promoting their worldview. I feel like in, in our lifetime, I hope that we get a, another generation of, of martyrs who are peacemakers being willing to really to say no blood, but our own, where we will love our enemies, but we're, we'll be willing to elevate the importance of another soul over our own security for their redemption. And I've just been very inspired by, by the potential that a lot of our churches have. I, I am so convinced that in, in our lifetime, we can create, raise a generation of people who will be peacemakers and will go into the world and will kind of refuse to bring, to have a, a worldview where the state can be reconciled to God here. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll close here shortly, but just some of the implications and next steps, you know, it's 2020 right now, now, and in any peacemaking that is not latched on to prayer is, I just think, so it, it, you're, we're not going to have success without prayer. And so I've been, I've been kind of rallying around some students here and some different brothers to just start praying about the places in the world that are experiencing conflict that we can get, get into. I would also say that some next starts are to start reordering the priorities of the, the, the two kingdoms model or the, the kingdom churches where we will, we will start to, I, I would say, reorder our priority of relationships where God is at the center, but other people, I, I feel like sometimes we selfishly begin to put our own salvation closer to God rather than the salvation of our enemies or even our neighbors and other people living within our circles. And then just in general, I think that in the world of peacemaking, we, we should see a lot of efforts to build unity in churches. And then in 2020 and beyond, some of the things that I'll be trying to really wrap my mind around here in Boston is organizing, recruiting, and training peacemakers who will then go out and begin church planning in violent communities with a mentality of permanence and sacrifice, knowing that they are packing their belongings and in their coffins as the Christians of old, the martyrs of old, with no expectation of of safety or security. And I, I really hope that we begin to see another generation who in our lifetime, the martyr ratios will flip and that each one of us will be able to point to a tangible example of followers of Christ who, <laughs> who have elevated the, the importance of others above themselves and 
I, I pray that in our lives, that the people we're training and discipling, we, we can say, you, you will lay it all on the line for Christ, or he'll come back before you have to. And that will just be our general mentality moving forward. And so I'd love to just, I'd love to just open it up for questions and discussion. I know I sort of covered a lot of ground there and tried to present and summarize the world of peacemaking as I understood it in these two, these two axes about view of God and view of enemies. And I know that is giving me a little bit of comfort to try to drift into this top right corner of sacrificialism and uh, from a two kingdoms perspective. And I'll, uh, I'll stop sharing my screen here so I can see everyone. <laughs> Thank you for the challenge, Zach. Wow. Um, I, I um, recently, uh, the, the, there's a, a, a movie that came out on the Free Burma Rangers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that it's captured the hearts of lots of people, young people especially, because that, you know, that's just, that, you know, obviously we, we all love that challenge, right? To go put ourselves on the line for good, right? And of course, it has the edge of, you know, carrying a, an assault rifle and taking out the bad guy. And it's, it's really tangible. And I know there's a lot of young people who that's captured their, their interest. Um, just, just last evening, I had a, a man from Oregon, young man from Oregon, telling me about some of the things that have been happening there in their community um, with, the, with the arsonists, supposedly, you know, supposedly arsonists. I uh, I'm not sure if that's, you know, is some of the conspiracy theories that, that have been going around and, and the different sides that are pushing this, but um, starting fires and right in Mennonite communities. And, uh, you know, these, you know, these Mennonites own lots of land. And, and basically the police are saying, if you see an arsonist, you can shoot him. No questions asked. Like, and they actually had like, I mean, I'm not saying the Mennonites were part of this, but there was, you know, there was groups of men out you know, putting up roadblocks. I mean, it was aggressive and it was just, it was by the people. It was, it was, it was their neighbors that were doing this. Um, and it's just so easy for our hearts to get pulled into, to these things, you know, your, your blood boils and you want to set things right. And uh, so definitely an applicable message for our day in so many ways. I might have some more thoughts to share later, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for sharing brother. Of yeah, I, I wanted to mention, I did, I get, I got a chance to speak. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, I, the names are escaping me, but the, there is a man, a man from a Mennonite background who, who interacted with the Free Burma Rangers. Does anyone know the, the name? I'm, uh, is it Daryl Yoder? Daryl Yoder. And he, yeah. And one of the Rangers showed up at his wedding and pinned him on with that, that little, that little medal. I don't know if anyone saw that video of, you know, the, the, the tension between a sacrificialist and a Christian realist is very, it's very palpable because we both believe in God and are going about it in a very different way. And what's, what's terrifying to me is that, you know, I had a conversation with this free Burma Ranger guy and he was like, and he's like, you have a, you have very convincing arguments about your love for enemies, but show me somebody that's doing it. Like right. show me a model that I can plug into that, um, that I can take my passion and 
and go into it. And it's, it's hard to point at things other than to say, Hey, church, church planning, um, church planning here, church planning there. So I, I feel like this is just the start of trying to build a, some sort of, some sort of model that we can inspire people to join. Not that, not that the churches aren't, aren't important, but I think a model is, is uh, ripe, ripe to be built <laughs> in our world. Well, I really enjoyed that talk, Zach, and you put a lot of things in a really clear manner there for us to think about. Had a question on the idea of not knowing of many martyrs uh, from the sacrificialist camp. So mm-hmm. I kind of see see the uh, Christian camp is divided in a certain way between people who have a very like strong theological basis for sacrificialism and they you know they thought out or inherited an idea of two kingdoms so you know we can maybe say Mennonites are in that category or at least you know two mm-hmm. kingdom Mennonites for example um, and then there's a lot of people out there be that maybe from Protestant backgrounds who don't have a developed theology but in their life they make personal choices because they're following the Bible so mm-hmm. an example like um, Nate St. Jim Elliott is five men down in I guess, I guess it was Ecuador. I can't remember for sure. Before they went, went to South America, they met with some Anabaptists and they talked about non-resistance. Um, now I don't, I don't know that they fully developed that in their, in their minds, but at some point they decided we're going to go to this tribe without weapons because we don't want to be tempted. Um, so, and then, you know, there's much more recent examples of people in Muslim countries who say, well, I'm not going to defend myself because I'm going to be a martyr for the gospel. Do they fit into your your quest for martyrs or not? Yeah, it's I, I so the first time I give this presentation, I did include Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. I don't know if you know my background. I was a missionary kid in Ecuador, spent 18 years in Ecuador. My parents went down to Ecuador following the example of the saints. Uh, we gave tours of their homes. Um, I spent, I, I think I've given a tour of Nate Saint's house upwards of 50 times to different people visiting. So I, that story is very special to my heart. And I actually, I do put them into the fat sacrificialist model of living without being, without coming from a church that stands for it. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I just, I think I'm passionate about is that in discipleship, we are discipling people to become like Christ. And I think they, they had it right. But when they called people into the church, what, what church are they calling people into to live afterwards? And that's where I feel like they're at this like 80%, <laughs> this 80% model. But then the, the you know, they, they did have rifles. So they brought rifles and they had them. Um, in their house and all that. So they, they left the rifles behind to go evangelize. And, you know, I just, a lot of my, my friends are kind of in this camp too, that are still in the air force, at least my Christian friends, they'll say, I wear two hats. I, when I put on my uniform and when I go, when I take off my uniform, then I go evangelize. Those are two different roles I play. And in one role, I'll be using violence and in the other, I won't. And I feel like that's kind of what I would view is they, they kind of flip-flop or teeter between those two camps, if you can imagine in different scenarios. But the Nate Saints story, I think, is an incredible and amazing story that I think if we tweaked it a little bit 
and then train people in that in the future, I, I feel like the, the ripple effects could be incredible. You, if you can imagine just 10 groups of Nate Saint-like people organizing and, and going in and trying to reach people like that. But yeah, I, I love the Nate Saint story. And I, I would give credit to them. I just, the, what, what's left afterwards is, is, is the, what, what I think is very important. And there is no non-resistant church in Ecuador. I, I know this because <laughs> I know, I know this because, you know, I, I was, I was part of the community that came after, after that movement. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Zach, for sharing um, your model on sacrificialism. I was surprised. I wasn't expecting the order of God, others, self, neighbor, and you know, God, others, enemies, and self, or however that goes in. And um, I was just thinking about our personal Christian life of striving toward God. You know, we have to deal with ourself and enemies before we can reach reach God and kind of that idea of as we as we strive to go strive for God we also are, are bringing enemies and others toward toward him as well so that was very inspirational and just the whole topic of you know non-resistance I feel like we as Christians in America we're going to be having to deal with that more as that example out in Oregon so yeah thanks for that, that inspiration amen I I feel like it's one of the great it's one of the great paradoxes in Christianity that I think Jesus points to often, you know, that if we lose our lives, we'll find it. If we find our lives, we'll lose it. And I, I think that order is trying to capture that that notion a little bit. I like your name, by the way, Zach. <laughs> yeah, just uh, Zach, your your challenge is right. You're you're um, you're basically giving this uh, a majority of this group, you know, is is Anabaptist background, and you're you're saying, brothers, where have you all been? Uh, and and it's legitimate. It really is legitimate because we have um, we have as a people, we've 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 kind of found a sweet spot here in America where we can kind of do our thing, and we're not don't have to be part. You know, we're not. The government says, hey, actually, you know, the Amish, you know, at the Amish at um, Trump's rally the other day, there was this mm-hmm. phrase being passed around online, make quilts great again. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's uh, Amish are known for the quilts, you know, and the, the, the world knows it, right? They know that they're, they're, they're art, they're, they're um, yeah, they're, 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 they're artisans when it comes to building stuff by hand. And, and uh, so may, may, uh, yeah, may, may we make the kingdom great again. And I really appreciate that challenge. And I, I hope you don't, I hope the tone doesn't come off as I'm pointing fingers as opposed to like, hey, let's mobilize and go. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing stopping us. I, this summer, I don't know if I, I got a time, I was actually trying to apply some of this stuff in Minneapolis during the George Floyd riots. And I, I was just I was I was shocked by by the the lack of a non-resistant worldview in in the riots. I don't know if any of you paid attention to I'm sure all of you were paying attention, but 
you know, there, there's people begging for the answer that we already have and, and what, what the solution to all these, a lot of these problems are. And I feel like this summer, we saw the worst of a lot of these worlds clashing in, in my mind, where, you know, some, you know, the, pol the polar side of the right was coming and there <laughs> you got these just warrior guys coming out and they're sort of militia type stances. And then, and then we got the, we get the globalists who are all about equality coming out and they're rioting and burning things down. And I just felt, I felt like the Christian bridge was, it, it's, it's so, um, I don't want to say obvious to me, but once you believe these things, you, you, you look at these people and you're like, if you only knew, <laughs> if you only knew what Christ had for you, and if you only knew his teachings, then none of this would be happening. And I just feel like we, it's a state of sort of mourning that we should be in but it's, I, I don't, ha I didn't really have the right answers. Like I was there, but it's like, what, what on earth does a non-resistant, what's our role in, in these places? If anything, I don't know if I, I still haven't settled if we had a, a big role to play this summer that we missed or, or something like that. Zach, I really appreciated um, your presentation there. A lot of, um, a lot of conceptual frameworks that I hadn't haven't really been spending time thinking about, and it's going to take me a little bit to digest it. Um, when you had those those four models mapped in circles in an opponent square, is that diagram something that you could put out on the chat? You'd be willing for people to pour over, or do you not consider it developed enough for that? I. Uh... I feel like I, I have a few changes that I ha I want to make to it, but I'd, I'd be happy to share it to the chat if you if that's something you'd be interested in. I some of the more the academic terms I've been sort of been people have been challenging me, but I'm, it's good critique if you'd be interested in seeing it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it'd just be interesting and something to continue to pour yeah. over. Of course, then I'd also, love to send I it. A, I had a question. Um, so practically speaking, for those of us who already have uh, our theological construct, our, our worldview embraces a lot of this sacrificial um, concept toward the world, but we're not actively um, promoting that to the world. What are some practical um, ideas of, of how um, we could mobilize. Are you thinking just get in the way of evil, like go where the riots are um, happening and get involved in trying to talk to people or? Yeah. I, th you know, I, I think my call at the end there was church planning in, in places that don't have kingdom churches, but I, you know, so I, I think that's what I'm trying to plan out for my future, but something that I've been doing with this, with this presentation specifically is I'll try to build that, that chart and I'll try to put it in front of someone who dis a Christian who disagrees with me. Cause I actually, I actually think dialoguing with professing Christians is massively important in our lifetimes because I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make any judgment calls about people's salvation and whether or not what churches will, will lead to, 
heaven, but I, I have found a lot of good dialogue around this model about just like, hey, where would you map yourself on this diagram of view of enemies and view of God? Like I put myself here. You can kind of, you can imagine using it as a map and then trying to tease out other people's beliefs theologically. I have a, I, I, that's been my, the thing that I just an easy, like during the COVID world, I just called people that disagreed with me and we had an hour long talk about it. And usually that ends up being a beneficial conversation. You, you can imagine a lot of interesting things flowing out of this. Um, I'll give you one example. I, are, are you guys familiar with Messiah College? And um, where is that? It's in Grantham, Pennsylvania. Yeah, there's, a, there's an author there who wrote a book called Disarming the Church. And his name is Eric Siebert. And the, the front title of his of his book is, you know, a revolver that's been tied into a knot. And I try, I read his book and I, I said, hey, I, I read it. I read your book. Would you mind discussing your view on two kingdoms? And, you know, he wanted really bad to be in the sacrificialist camp. But his book called called for much more political involvement than I think a lot of us would be comfortable with. And he said, you know, at the end of it, he said, I, I wish more than anything, you would put me in this top right quadrant, but I think you would put me in this globalist quadrant. And I said, I, I think I, I was like, I think you're right. But it was a great dialogue over just this question of the state involvement at that point. And I think, I think us winning over other churches and unifying churches is going to be a really important step as well, Truman, even, lo I mean, locally here, I, I feel like I feel like it's not just the, you know, obviously it's not just the violence that we're trying to go into. We're trying to win over people. We're trying to win that Christian realist camp too, in my mind, and building bridges into all these worlds is something that might look different. Hey, can I put a dollar view into this? Of course. Okay. I have a guy, everybody knows I run a halfway house for sex offenders. I have a guy next door. And he hates us. He hates what we're doing. He hates everything about us. He tells everybody who walks by, there's pedophiles over there. And after months and months and months of trying to soothe his anger with many different things, there just came a day where he yelled at me, come back here, I'll beat your brains in. And I said, why are you going to run back there? Come right here and let's do it. And I got face to face with him. And when he told me he was going to beat me up, I said, go ahead. I will not call the police and I will not strike you back. And when you hit me, I will get back up and allow you to hit me again. Now that I, I directly confront, uh, confronted his anger. He has not spoke to me. He won't look at me anymore. He hasn't yelled. He hasn't said anything wrong. And he kind of like, I've taken all the juice out of his, his sails. Is that a blue collar approach? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> My name what? is Carlin High from the phone call. Is Can you hear me? Let's yes, back with your, Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. We can hear you. With, with your Air Force background, Zach, would you be familiar with names like John Boyd or William S. Lind and the moral level of war? 
I, I know John Boyd well. No, I did not know the second name. Boyd is taught. William you know, S. Lind yeah. is the, is the pop, he popularized the John Boyd's idea of the moral level of war. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, he says there's three levels, the physical, the mental, and the moral, which the physical is obvious. The mental would be more like uh, psychological or propaganda when you're trying to convince the other side that they can't win. Mm-hmm. The moral level is more convincing the other side that they are in the wrong and that they should not win. More like, say, and he points to this as the reason why the United States has lost almost every armed conflict since Vietnam, because they, you, they end up being seen as the oppressor. Mm. And so, so the, the story we just heard there about uh, you know, the, the, the man who was always angry at the halfway house people, I, I heard him saying like the, the moral level as instead of out fighting the other person, you are taking the fight out of them. Hmm. And uh, I was fascinated to learn that this William S. Lind man is neighbors and friends with uh, David Klein, an Amish farmer who has spoken at Anabaptist Identity Conference. And uh, I couldn't help but wonder if, uh, any, if there was any influence there with the, that idea he's pushing. So, yeah, it's, it's just something that uh, I had heard about and it fascinated me because I almost, hearing his idea of how that moral level of war works sounded uh, almost resonated with the, the non-resistance teachings I grew up hearing. So, yeah, thanks oh, I, for your presentation. Oh, is, a, a, is a local view. I'm not into the global Yes. <clears throat> yes. Thank you, Zach, for sharing. Just um, wondered if you had any um, thoughts on your choice of words uh, between peacemaking versus non-resistance. Yeah, uh, I think I, I intentionally used the word sacrificialism as opposed to non-resistance because generally at this point, I think non-resistance is a little too passive. Um, we're, we're often grouped in the pacifist camp and that's something that really 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 bothers me is that I, I don't think any of us would call ourselves pacifists and I think non non-resistance kind of has been swallowed by the the pacifist word in general and so when I'm I, I think with all of you brothers it's easy I think non-resistance is understood more easily but if I'm giving if I'm talking to somebody and I say non-resistance that usually it's like the, the pacifist. I, I also avoided, avoided the word pacifism here. I could have used, uh, used that as well. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, it's uh, something I've often argued for the term that Jesus uses about peace. But yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. And it, it also bothers me that the peace building world has, in my mind, they've the peace building being this other sort of the the EMU world. They've sort of stolen peacemaking in my mind, where I, I you know I say, hey, what motivates you? And they're like, uh, humanity rather than Christ. That so I, I feel like we have a little bit of work to sort of reclaim peacemaking from a like a Christ level motivation, if that if that makes sense. 
and to differentiate between peace building and peacemaking in general in terms of Sermon on the Mount peacemaking. Oh, how's that? Exactly. Hey, go ahead, Wendell. Yeah, I just wanted to say that was really helpful to me. Um, your differentiation between the globalist perspective and the what you're calling this globalist and the sacrificialist, um, because I've heard too some of the, yeah, some of this almost some of the same things that I believe coming out of their mouths, but yet looking at the way it's worked out, and and I like I like your focus on on what or your thoughts about what the focus is there and the, that humanity is their focus rather than Jesus Christ. And, and I think mm -hmm. that's very helpful to me in understanding the differences there between you know, the, the top, the two top sectors of your, your different comparisons. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks brother. Yeah, Zach, um, have you heard the term ideal resistance? Um, John D. Martin has kind of pushed that notion. There's actually an episode and if you haven't heard it, I definitely recommend listening to it. I, I, I love that idea. And Leo Eby has been promoting that for 10 years. So. <laughs> I, the, the ideal resistance. I have, I have heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I love that idea. Um, and then just, just, just a little note here. Um, I'm part of the, the prayer, the prayer, the 24 hour prayer chain thing that's going on. Um, that's called eternal prayer flames. And recently one of the emails they put out, it was a note that said, said this, uh, an Anabaptist brother recently did a survey and learned that there are at least nine plain people, like plain conferences or fellowships in the Anabaptist world in which members in good standing are car carrying concealed handguns to church. Mm. And I mm. find that unbelievable. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah the... I... I don't want to be, I don't want to point, I, I've been generally surprised that there's, I'll just call it a, a, a sort of a closet Republican. Right. <laughs> there's right. a little bit of that going on for people arguing for gun rights. And it's like, I, I don't understand what, <laughs> yeah, I, but, but we, we have a little bit of work there. <laughs> yeah, that, maybe this is getting too far off topic. But I listened to your message uh, a few weeks ago about taking extreme ownership. Oh, yeah. And I enjoyed that. Um, of course, you didn't want to criticize your dad. But the example that you gave in the message was your dad taking extreme ownership of a situation through non-peacemaking means. And um, I don't remember if you fully developed, like, how you can take extreme ownership through peacemaking. But... In your mind, is, does that look like what Patrick Matthews described? Like, how how does how do these two things, taking extreme ownership and, and um, peacemaking, flow together? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think I love Patrick's stories here. If any of you ever have time to to listen to another interview I do with Pablo Yoder, it's on Followers of the Way channel. I don't know if any of you have heard him tell his stories about how he and his family react in, in violent examples. I feel like there's this third way. It's, it's the third wave reaction that is taking extreme ownership where you're, you'll step into something and reject violence from the very beginning as sort of being like, if I, if, if I run into a situation, I'm going to get involved, but I'm not going to use violence and find this other 
this other third way example, I, I feel like that's how I would mix them. And I think Pablo, <laughs> I think he's the person that I know that has the most examples of taking extreme ownership of a situation um, and, and still following the ways of Christ and just having like really amazing outcomes. And unfortunately, I don't think we're promised that, but that I, I would point to sort of his life as just the prime example of, <laughs> of going somewhere and interacting with people who the day before cut somebody's hand off and now they're in your house <laughs> um, and you're serving them coffee so they don't rob you. It's kind of an, an amazing, an amazing example of, of Christ's love being able to permeate, <laughs> permeate other people's lives. I don't, I don't know if that satisfies your question, Philip helpful yeah but until you practically do it it's all a theoretical practice question which one i'm on your website for um followers of the way which one am i looking for to put up on our chat so people can listen to this the one with pablo yeah let me um it's on you it's actually on you i'm not sure if it's on our website hey, hey, it's on hey, youtube zach you could just drop it on the whatsapp channel when you get oh, a chance yeah. there i'll do that okay it's a few minutes after the hour uh thank you all for your particip uh, participation and dialogue uh we do have another announcement yet but maybe zach if you want to lead us in prayer and then we'll follow that with an announcement of course father i am very grateful for these brothers who have have joined in the the waking hours of the morning just to to, to think about you and your son and the ways he's called us to in our lifetime. Father, I, I, I do pray over everybody's life here that we could, we could just be chasing your son's second coming, Lord, and that we could, we could just say, we can ask, ask ourselves, how can we get him here? How can we hasten Christ's coming? Um, how can we follow in his ways? And I just, I pray for, your, for wisdom and the different ways and the different projects that all of us are involved in Father, please bless, bless our work and may we have success where you would have us have it and failure where we are not amplifying your glory. And in your son's name, amen. Amen. So thank you again, Zach, for sharing. You're welcome here anytime. Thank you. Uh, we have not done well in the past of announcing what's um, on for next week. Uh, Brian, do you have something to share of what's uh, planned for next week? <clears throat> Yeah, um, I have my friend Sam Bear on here. Uh, good morning, Sam. I, I see you're on there. And Sam, he might have the most commitment of all of us. He's from Calgary, Alberta. And so he's about, what, two hours behind us here, Sam, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so he's up at four o'clock <laughs> to be on this call. So good to have you here, brother. Uh, Sam here. has quite a, quite a story to share of his life. And recently... Um, coming back to God and he and his wife choosing to um, really put themselves to, to the way of Jesus and uh, just amazing work in their lives there. And I asked him to share um, here next, next uh, Saturday morning. So we look forward to that, Sam. So All right. Good, good, good to have you on the call. All Anybody right. else two hours, be, be, uh, two hours early here, earlier. You might be the only one. You need to start recruiting some more people from the West there. Brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just keep in mind next weekend, it is going to be four in the morning. So if it's not, the thoughts don't come together that well, then that's <laughs> <Okay>. why. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us, and uh, may the Lord bless your week. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. 